Welcome to another episode of Clearlight Connections, where we talk to the people behind the businesses of Bay Area Houston, proudly sponsored by UTMB Health. Special guest today is Dr. Gregory uh, Gray from UTMB, uh, and you're here to talk about the One Health Initiative. Well, yes, thanks. Uh, I've just joined UTMB about uh, two months ago uh, from Duke University, and uh, I'm a proponent of this uh, One Health uh, approach to solving wicked problems. Yeah, and, and please describe what the One Health Initiative is and, and basically its impact on medicine. Well, today, with uh, the modern movement of people, goods, and uh, animals, we, we have very complex problems, such as those we're facing now with COVID-19. And these problems can't be solved by any one discipline or any one institution. It's complicated and has many factors. And so the solution uh, to approaching these wicked problems is approaching it from the One Health uh, way. And uh, basically that means bringing in the, the various disciplines that are, need to be engaged uh, to approach the problem and, and uh, solve it. When did this movement first start? Well, the concept's pretty old, actually. Uh, uh, you know, the, it has to do with the, our inner linkage with animals and the environment, how, um, you know, you, you just can't really separate the, the three, uh, human health, animal health, environmental health. But uh, we've developed sort of a parochial approach to training. And so while I was trained in medicine, I didn't really understand anything about the vet, what the veterinarians did do in a similar fashion, not so much about what environmental health professionals do. So we're having to reconnect with people from different disciplines when we look at these complicated problems. And so were you brought in specifically to bring this initiative to UTMB? Well, I think one of the things that UTMB uh, brought me in for is to bring uh, the One Health approach uh, more in the in the limelight of, of what UTMB is doing. Actually, UTMB is already doing a lot of One Health right now. Uh, it's just that um, they they haven't really branded it in in a way that uh, honors all their investments. But UTMB is heavily engaged uh, in looking for zoonoses or diseases that move back and forth between humans and animals and looking at uh, environmental factors such as uh, populations of insects that carry those diseases. So we're going to try to basically bring together the faculty, the staff scientists together and increase our training and better better promote what is going on and build on that. Uh, the other thing I do is I, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and I study respiratory viruses like the coronaviruses that we're so concerned about today. Also, the influenza viruses and some other viruses, killer cold viruses we call adenoviruses, enteroviruses, and uh, some paramyxoviruses. So we, my group um, looks at five different families of respiratory viruses. And, and you did mention that while that was your training, there was all these other components of the One Health Initiative or the, the idea of One Health that you knew nothing about. What, what have you learned that, that's really kind of brought it all together for you? Well, in, in pursuing these complex problems like you 
know, for instance, um, the risk that a influenza A virus from birds, avian flu, uh, might um, uh, hurt us in a big way, cause a pandemic. I've learned a lot from my veterinary colleagues. I mean, I've spent a lot of time both in the United States and internationally studying um, animal husbandry in a similar fashion with respect to swine influenza and the coronaviruses that live in animals. You know, how do, how do veterinarians care for their herds and flocks? And, they, and there's a lot to learn there. Veterinarians uh, are great to work with. They have a population-based philosophy where those of us in human medicine are sort of trained to take care of one patient at a time. So uh, that's been unique. And then in the last uh, 10 years or so, we've also been in, benefited from environmental health scientists. And it turns out that they have a lot of devices that those of us in human medicine um, are not experienced with. For instance, uh, their devices can pull viral nucleic acid and sometimes live viruses from the air. And as we know, COVID-19 is heavily transmitted through the air. Those devices have come into the forefront of scientific new knowledge because people have been putting the devices in healthcare settings and home settings and, and the public square settings uh, and making remarkable discoveries that have influenced, you know, how we respond. Yeah, and, and I, we always love to talk about UTMB is such a great teaching hospital. So how does this work its way in into the, well, the study? Well, UTMB is uh, extraordinarily uh, rich in training environments and, and institu institutional support, and I'm just beginning to learn about that institutional support. But they already have some uh, One Health training programs that they've used to train not only scholars in Texas, but also international scholars. And the idea is to quick, equip uh, international and Texas scholars to be able to respond more efficiently and quickly to whatever threat we encounter next. And sometimes that has involved um, partnering uh, with Texas A&M and doing simulation, you know, disaster events, not only infectious disease, but other types of disasters, uh, and uh, just helping the other, um, the young scholars understand, you know, how to tap into the skills that scholars that tra have trained outside of their sphere, uh, you know, what they can offer in problem solving. Yeah, and you, you kind of mentioned uh, avian flu, swine flu, and it kind of reminded me that I think we've forgotten how connected we are with the animal world and the environment. Uh, one of your colleagues was on and was talking about how this area has a higher concentration, it seems, of breast cancer patients, and they believe it's environmental. So, I, I you know, there's, there's factors like that, and then I'm reminded of uh, in the 80s there was uh, uh, mad cow disease in Britain. And I spent uh, enough time over there to where now I can't give blood over here. And it and it reminds me of that interconnectedness that you're talking about, about the different disciplines. Well, it's really true, and it's a two-way street. And that's one of the remarkable things that we've learned about. Um, while we do our best to provide biosecurity, for instance, with meat processing centers, uh, the people... Uh, in those centers suffered greatly from COVID-19 because sometimes there was an accelerated transmission in the crowded facilities. 
in a similar fashion, um, sometimes, uh, for instance, animal workers have have introduced human pathogens into animals. And so working at this human-animal nexus um, is a critical area. And so we recommend that if we're looking for the, the next generation of threats, we need to be looking where there's dense populations of humans and in close contact with dense populations of animals. And it's 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 a little bit co- complicated, but one can see it as uh, perhaps an example of when you first have a, a young child and you send that young child to daycare. The hygienic situation is such that that child's going to bring home whatever viruses are circulating in daycare. You just... Everybody gets a cold. Well, in a in a animal health or in an animal production facility, whatever viruses are circulating in the animals are amplified because the animals are so many, and the hygiene is not so good separating the animals. And so, um, you know, it makes sense to us that if you're looking for the next coronavirus threat, you you have some understanding of what coronaviruses are in those dense populations of animals and it's beginning to spill over. And we don't think this this occurs like overnight. In fact, there's evolutionary virology data to suggest that the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2, it probably took it 30 or, uh, 30 or 40 years to adapt. At least about a year ago, the nearest uh, phylogenetic, uh, the nearest neighbor genetically, uh, it, it departed sometime after 1969, and they found some closer relatives to this virus now. But at any rate, if we could do the surveillance for novel viruses before the virus fully adapts to humans and becomes highly transmissible and then virulent, then we could develop diagnostics and vaccines to stay ahead of the game. Right now we're kind of, uh, uh, we're responding to whatever raises its head. So we're becoming advocates. Let's let's do periodic surveillance in hot spots for emerging infectious diseases to better anticipate the threats. So a very proactive approach. Yes, and we think we can do it in a way that it's not so expensive and it's not so complex and it's compatible and attractive to some of our partners in the developing world where there might be some resistance to doing this if we came in like we used to do international surveillance, um, not really offering anything to help the people of the developing countries, but just going in, getting their specimens, and bringing them to the developed world. So the philosophy has changed somewhat um, to partnering with them in the last 20 years or so, more so than just going in and doing a studying and pulling the specimens out. And you've been a part of this initiative in several places uh, around the around the globe, correct? Yeah, before COVID, at Duke, we were in 14 countries doing various different surveillance and training programs, training them how to do One Health. Um, so right now, uh, we we have active studies chiefly in Eastern Malaysia and um, in Vietnam. We also have a smattering of other studies in um, Kenya. Sri Lanka, um, China, um, and uh, uh, Pakistan and the Philippines, smaller studies. But um, we basically have engaged our partners in those countries um, 
to do One Health types of studies at the human-animal interface or where you can't do that if there's a political barrier or whatever, uh, looking at people that are who are hospitalized with pneumonia. You know, you know, or we, we recently found um, the first ever alpha coronavirus. So it's there's there's five or six different types of coronavirus. This is the first alpha, a canine-like, a dog-like corona that was uh, isolated from a patient's in eastern Malaysia, a state called Sarawak. It's on the island of Borneo. It's on the equator, very different equatorial wildlife and everything. Uh, it was from a patient with pneumonia. And so that virus represents a whole other group of viruses that could cause threats to humans. And then shortly after that, another group used our approach, and they found very 99.4% similar virus in Haiti, a thousand miles away. So the take-home message is that we're probably assaulted all the time with novel viruses, but because our healthcare setting diagnostics will not pick them up, our, our, our diagnostics are dialed in to only pick up uh, known viruses and not to cross-react with others. Because they're so dialed in, we, we don't, unless there's an outbreak, we don't invest the diagnostic to discover a new virus. So what we're saying is you need to develop a newer approach that looks with what we call our pan-species diagnostics, picks up all the coronaviruses, and periodic surveillance in certain areas so we can pick these things up maybe 20, 30 years before they become a problem. Yeah, it sounds like it would it would go a long way in hopefully preventing the type of things we've experienced over the last 18 months. Well, we think so. And I'm, I'm not alone. There are other people uh, who've embraced this uh, kind of approach. In fact, many arms of uh, the U.S. government and the EU and uh, a number of other uh, governments have embraced the One Health approach, the WHO, um, the, the equivalent in the animal world, the OIE, uh, have said, you know, this One Health approach is the way to problem solve for infectious diseases, but also for different things like uh, antimicrobial-resistant organisms or, you know, things that involve complex health toxicology, air pollution. Uh, you know, you need to get human, animal, and sometimes environmental health scientists working together. So me as a patient, what, what, what does it look like to me if it's, if it's done right? If it's, if it's well, as an individual patient, it, it, it doesn't really impact you at all unless you're perhaps an animal worker. And um, so we, we would think that the animal workers, the people that work with, you know, 20,000 head of cattle or hogs or, you know, big flocks of egg-laying chickens, uh, because there's a large animal population, once a virus gets in there, it never burns out because there's a constant introduction of na immunologically naive animals. And so the virus is sustained. It's like a giant daycare center with new kids coming in all the time. It just goes from one generation of kids to the next. Well, if that virus is not killing the animals, there's no incentive for the animal production facility to do anything about it. They just, that's ah, just a, no, it's a nuisance. Um, but if that virus spills over to the animal workers and causes them problems, 
and then we got you know the potential to st- for them to seed their communities and the cities and 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 the uh, problems. So what we have to do is focus surveillance at the human animal interface, looking both at the animals and the people, and determining what viruses are in the people that shouldn't be there. Uh, so for instance, we just did a study. Uh, with uh, some folks at Colorado State, they were actually looking for toxin or toxic um, irritants for the lung in dairy farms, and they were they had these little samplers that people wore around all day, um, and they did um, nasal swabs. Bottom line is they found all sorts of evidence of an influenza D virus that is highly enzootic, or endemic, we say, in the cattle that they're exposed to. And yet this virus doesn't yet, or as we know, cause illness. It, it infects people, but it doesn't cause them to be real sick. But if that virus were to mutate and, be, and cause serious illness, there's almost no way those dairy workers could escape it. So that's the kind of information we need to understand you know, what viruses are circulating in these big herds and flocks for meat production? I mean, we got to have these herds and flocks. It's the most efficient way to produce meat. I, I'm not saying don't we, but we have to partner with the industry, uh, you know, to anticipate the threats. Now, because the threats can move also from humans to animals, it makes sense to study the animals as well for the movement of human pathogens. Because that that represents another mutation of some sort. Yeah, the human pathogens actually have caused in in pig farming, um, influenza A, have spilled over, a term, cross-species, and caused cross-species infections in the pigs, and sometimes that's problematic. And sometimes people can introduce uh, various pathogens that harm pigs inadvertently. For instance, uh, in their shoes or whatever. So there's a big movement now to make our meat production farms, big agriculture, more biosecure, um, uh, you know, through showering and changing clothes and all that stuff, uh, and cleaning vehicles and etc. Um, but we sometimes we forget that the human can carry it in their in their nasal or their lung in the respiratory system. Um, and for that reason, we need to find low-cost ways to do surveillance so as not, not to harm the businesses. Yeah, this sounds like a, a great approach and, and, and a proactive one that hopefully, you know, takes hold and really helps prevent, kind of like you said, I mean, no matter which way it goes, but help, helps detect these things before they become big, big problems. Yeah, so I, I had a, a young scholar, a postdoc, um, with me at, at Duke, and we won a small grant uh, or permission to do a study uh, in partnership with pig farms in North Carolina. And we set up these aerosol samplers and periodically check them for known pig viruses. And be, the aerosol samplers can pick up the air that, you know, 100 pigs breathe, and you don't have to touch the animals. So it's an attractive way uh to do surveillance. You don't have to grab a pig and shove a swab down and make the pig anxious. At any rate, we found an incursion, a new introduction of a virus, one week before it caused disease enough for them to call the veterinarians in. 
And so these techniques, this One Health, it was an environmental sampler, One Health approaches can really help the industry as well. Yeah. And and it sounds like it's going to help protect us all down the road. So very well, encouraging. Well, you know, and it's catching on. I mean, there are uh, in um, in many economic forums and in in legislation and policy documents, not just the U.S. but many developing countries or developed countries. There there are embracements in that language of the One Health approach. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show today, and I uh, appreciate you being in this area, and it sounds like uh, good things are going to happen at UTMB. Well, well thanks, Jameson. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hello, Glitter area Chamber of Commerce members and Bay Area Houston. If you're a business wanting to expand your customer base, give back to your community, think about the quality of life around Clear Lake area, think about joining the Chamber. Go to clearlakearea.com for more information.